From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, reporting today from Carlsbad, California. On this week's edition, diversity in sustainability's executive ranks, why the outdoor industry is so collaborative, and could Trump's presidency be a gift in disguise? It's a year of magical thinking, this week on 350. It's January, Friday the 13th, uh, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, talking as always to senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello there, Lauren. Hey there, how's it going? It's going good. You know, it's uh, it's been a rainy week here in California and uh, the drought is dangerously close to being over. It's kind of exciting, although we're all, we're all looking to be outside a little bit, so... Uh, um, hopefully this weekend will give us that chance, but it's, uh, from a environmental point of view, it's, uh, it's actually a good time. Yeah, definitely. So I think 30% of the state is officially in the clear, but I have to confess, we're actually not in person this week because you've been jet setting all over the place. Well, jet setting all over, if, if you include San Diego and Salt Lake City all over the place. Uh, yeah, I spent, uh, uh for outdoorsy and beer fans, those are excellent <laughs> destinations. Well, it's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned outdoor and beer because that's a bit of what I've been doing. First of all, Monday, Tuesday, I keynoted a sustainability breakfast, um, at the Outdoor Retailers Association annual, uh, uh, winter market, uh, which is where basically you think of everything that's sold in a REI store or, or something like that, um, and a thousand, twelve, fourteen hundred uh, vendors. And um, anyway, they had a sustainability breakfast about uh, a little over a thousand people. I did the, the keynote, and it was a great, great group. And we'll talk a little bit uh, later in the in this episode with uh, Amy Roberts, the executive director of the Outdoor Industry Association. And then uh, this is. Um, Week one of three consecutive weeks of meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network, as uh, we've talked about in the past. That's our membership group of sustainability executives from big companies, and we bring them together in groups of about 20 several times a year face-to-face to for what we call peer-to-peer learning and what they tend to call group therapy. This week, we did something a little bit unusual. Uh, we had a meeting one day at one venue and another day at another venue, so on Wednesday, we were at Stone Brewing Company in uh, uh, Escondido, which is just one of the great independent uh, microbrew craft brewing companies. Um, and we uh, had a great meeting space and we got the, the, the cook's tour of everything, but we had a lot of beer tasting and uh, a seven beer paired you know, meal with a course, uh, beer paired to every course. And Interesting, uh, but very cool what they're doing in terms of how they're addressing some of the big challenges around water use and sustainability of waste and so many other things. And then on uh, uh, Thursday, the second day of the GreenBiz Executive Network meeting, we're uh, we're at, uh, which is where I am now, at Thermo Fisher, a company that doesn't exactly you know, have a high profile in, in, in most people. But it's, um, if you think of, uh, of, a, of a laboratory, scientific laboratory, and you think of everything in, in there that, uh, you know, from 
gloves and pipettes to the most sophisticated DNA sequencing machine. Uh, that is made at, by this company, Thermo Fisher, which is really a roll-up of about 30 or 40 or 50 other companies that they've acquired over time. So we're learning about sustainability in that world and, and what they expect to see in the coming uh, months and years and with healthcare and that's a really and scientific research in general. So um, it's been a, a little yin, a, a little yang, and uh, a lot of different things to learn about. Ah, from the from the laboratory to the the beer tasting realm, I guess you just got to make sure you're not operating equipment in the lab after too many beer tastings. But um, I've got to say, I was also <laughs> just down in San Diego, and uh, yeah, Stone is so great. Also, Green Flash, another brewery I would give a shout out to, and Modern Times if you're into the whole urban brewing thing. But definitely, no shortage of places to check out down there. Well, that's our week in review. But let's talk about the week in review for sustainable business. So our excellent in-house technology expert, senior writer Heather Clancy, started the week off with a look at a tech trend that we've been tracking for a couple of years now, the Internet of Things, IoT. But she specifically looked at IoT as the potential secret ingredient for tackling food waste. Basically, she was taking a look at a company, Emerson, another one that might not be a household name, uh, but it's a, actually a big player in the garbage disposal business. Uh, it's a $22 billion corporate. Uh, so that makes it the world's largest provider of equipment for handling food waste. Um, it's a Missouri-based company that has actually looked to take on food waste a as a core part of its business uh, with a service called Grind to Energy that takes kitchen scraps, grease, and food leftovers and turns them into biogas and other organic substances like fertilizer. Yeah, this is uh, waste to energy of how do we you know, create energy out of things that aren't uh, fossil fuels or even, uh, you know, s solar and wind. What are some of the other options? And there's uh, probably we can think of, of food waste as one of those great renewable resources because we uh, always have it every day. And unfortunately, and um, until we learn how to eliminate waste at the front end, uh, there's certainly some great efforts to make sure that doesn't go into landfills or into waterways. And uh, there is so much, um, if you think of calories, as heat and energy in form of energy, uh, there is a lot of energy embedded in food that we can now put to use. Mm -hmm. And specifically with Emerson, the IoT part of this comes into play with a new deal they announced in January with AT and T to connect the the sensors that they're putting on their food processing equipment, um, and, and you can now get a lot of data collected through that system. Uh, where Emerson customers like Whole Foods um, would be able to hopefully address some of the habits that cause waste. So it's this interesting issue of they're finding a productive use for this waste, like you said, but obviously food waste is something you want to draw down over time. So this is another one of these interesting realms where you have to figure out what data is most useful for tackling a systemic issue like food waste. And then how do you use that information to hopefully get at the root of the problem? And this is one key part of, of what we've come to call the circular economy, which is about keeping molecules in play. In this case, 
how do we use technology to to track food waste to and then to uh, to get it back in this, in a form that can be utilized in this case to turn back into energy as opposed to uh, as we said before landfill um, and the technology component of of doing these kinds of things. It's not just a matter of, you know, saving it in a pile and throwing it into a composter or something like that. It's, it, it's usually more sophisticated than that, not to mention the, the, the logistics and, and so many other parts. And that's where technology comes in. And of course, this is uh, the focus technology meets sustainability of our annual Verge conference. So this is uh, really a core part of this. And then right alongside that, uh, I think on the same day, we published uh, another very closely related story called IoT and Smart City Trends that are boosting smart waste collection market. And again, this is how the Internet of Things is helping municipal waste collection operations, uh, focusing on you know, the most efficient pickup schedules by knowing what's what's where and how much even the, the, the their half, uh, half full bins or fully full bins and um, and how to do route optimization and in order to collect materials as efficiently as possible and, again, to, to get them back into production cycles and keeping them out of landfills. So th this, there's a, uh, a lot going on, and this uh, actually focuses on some um, efforts in Australia to um, – but you know, working with big companies like Cisco and Telstra – which is a, a telecom company, uh, on how do we create a, a smart waste collection. And, and this uh, is a, another you know, big and growing business that we're tracking because, it, once again, it relates mm -hmm. to technology meets sustainability. Well, also in terms of numbers, you can definitely expect more companies to jump into this space. That piece was authored by Christina Jung of Navigant Research, and they estimate that that market is expected to grow from 57 million in 2016 to over 223 million in 2025. So that would be looking at annual growth around 16%. Uh, interesting to see who jumps into the fray and where we go from here in this field. And then we published a piece by our good friend and agent provocateur, John Elkington, out of the UK, and uh, about uh, sort of his view on on our new soon-to-be president, could Trump's presidency be a gift in disguise? And he sort of takes uh, a view that a number of people I've been talking about, which is that, first of all, this isn't the end of the world, at least not yet, uh, that there's a, um, you know, that, that and, and not to downplay uh, so the seriousness of of some of the environmental stances on climate and and renewable energy that the new administration seems to be taking, but he looked at the sort of cycles of history, what he called the U-ben of history. It's a U-shaped curve that has happened in, in numerous times uh, in our history, uh, and uh, there's sort of long, you know, twenty-five or thirty-year periods of of time, um, and what he calls the long wave cycles. And suggests that we might be emerging into a transformation right now uh, that uh, maybe we didn't see coming or didn't think it was imaginable. But but uh, some old orders are, are imploding faster than the new ones can self-assemble, which is leading to some of the confusion, uncertainty, and fear that that we're we're seeing. And he you know relates this uh, to some of the climate uh, issues that are going on right now, and uh, it's, a, it's just a really interesting and you know. A attempt here to sort of put this in perspective, which God knows we all need right now. 
Yeah, I think getting away from the appointments and sort of everything happening on Capitol Hill this week, even for a second, is is helpful. And some of the the quotes in this piece, the the poll quotes that we looked at were were pretty fascinating. Uh, one of them was this is a quote from Otto Scharmer, who's the co-founder of ULab, uh, who says that Donald Trump is to democracy what 2008 was to capitalism, a profound wake-up call. And he also urges us to keep in mind that experience is not what happens to us, but what we do with what happens to us. So I think that definitely does actually coincide with what a lot of environmental groups uh, are saying in terms of how you organize the private sector, how you organize NGOs. Um, and, and, and some of this is going to be reactive, obviously, seeing what happens with the appointments, who comes into these high executive posts. Um, but also, what can you do proactively to sort of keep the ball rolling on on renewables and uptake there? Um, so we'll, we'll see, I guess. And I think it's really important to point out, as I said, I'm at a meeting of our Green Biz Executive Network. This is we'll have we have one this week. We'll have uh, one each of the next two weeks. So we're actually uh, before, just before and just after the inauguration. And uh, one of the things we've done uh, did this week, and we'll do the next two weeks, is we go around the room. And as always, introductions: who are you? Name, rank, serial number, kind of thing. And we ask uh, another question. And this week's question was: How, if at all? Uh, has the the incoming administration affected your company's uh, sustainability strategy or activities? And I can't tell you who's in the room because it's Chatham House rule, but about 15 big companies, all billion dollar plus revenue. And pretty uniformly, the answer is not at all. It's keep your head down, full speed ahead, stay the course. Um, you know, nobody's stop, you know, stopping and saying, well, we don't know whether we need to, quote unquote, do sustainability anymore based on this new administration. They're doing this stuff. And yes, there's you know, if you're market facing, if part of some some of the sustainability executives uh, work internally with the company to, uh, you know, green up the facilities or, you know, procure renewable energy or do reporting and things like that. And some are more market-facing, where they help the sales and marketing teams, and uh, you know, help customers solve uh, some of their or address some of their environmental uh, and social challenges through whatever products and services they're selling. So, if you're market-facing, there's a little bit of uncertainty. But you know, this new era is not right now destined to change much in terms of the trajectory of businesses addressing sustainability uh, and continuing this sort of nice uh, ramp up of efforts that's been going on for 25 years. I think, in fact, some companies may even be stepping it up a little. How companies in different sectors are responding to the presidential transition in the U.S. and lots of other things going on um, is definitely going to be front and center at a big event we have coming up. And we had a story this week by Ellie Beekner, who is our conference director at Green Biz Group called Going Fast, Going Far, and Going Together. There was a little bit of a preview for our Green Biz 17 event coming up in Phoenix, Arizona next month. Yeah, and it was also a little bit of a brag uh, because one of the things that's happened over increasingly, and it's really crystallized so much this year uh, at, at the event next month, in February 14th to 16th, is that other organizations are, are, are starting to host their own events uh, in and around uh, our events, some right on the site there and some nearby. So 
this year we're going to have, in addition to the, the Sustainability Consortium, which is one of our original convening partners, we now have a, a number of others. Uh, the uh, World Business Council for Sustainable Development is hosting a one-day event the day before our event where they're going to be talking about things like their work on the Natural Capital Protocol and the Social Capital Protocol and, and a lot of other tools that they've developed for sustainability executives. The climate group is going to convene members of its EP, which is around energy productivity, the EP100 initiative uh, to focus on how do you double corporate energy productivity. In other, in other words, the amount of uh, of energy that goes into every dollar of revenue. The Sustainable Purchasing Count Leadership Council is having a meeting there. GRI, formerly the Global Reporting Initiative, is going to have one of their symposia there. Uh, a, a group, um, my uh, co-author Puck Mickleby and I are going to be keynoting an event that Second Nature is putting on. It's about six or 700 uh, presidents uh, of, of colleges and universities, uh, as well as their sustainability teams, focusing on climate action. So that's really exciting is that we have now created this, this great critical mass uh, in Phoenix in this uh, second week of February that's coming around our event. And then, of course, there's our event, which is you know sort of the centerpiece of all this, which has just turned out really, really great. So Ellie wrote about sort of that whole... Um, Pisa and how all this originated with through our partnership with Arizona State University and the Walton Sustainability Solutions Initiative. There, just been a fabulous partner. So I think you know we wanted to uh, you know sort of point out sort of this how uh, a lot of this has come together in one place, and then like I said, brag a little bit. But you know, I, I guess one of the reasons this is happening, and this is something we've been hearing from corporate executives for a long time, but it's gotten louder and louder over time, Is that, which is that there are just too damn many corporate environmental conferences and people, their travel budgets, not to mention just the time away from the office. And they said, can you, can you start to bring these together so that we can go to one place? And even if we have to spend the whole week there and, and, and attend multiple conferences. So this is what we're doing, and we'll see this at, at Verge, our, our event in the fall in, in Silicon Valley, a number of other organizations coalescing around there. And, and we're very excited about this. It creates this great critical mass, but hopefully it's bringing value and service to uh, to all of you listeners, to our the, the, our readers and, and subscribers and, and partners and, and podcast listeners that just come to one place and uh, you'll get just sort of all the different groups. Yeah, we'll link to more info in our episode notes. But if you want to get more information about GreenBiz 17 or any of our free webcasts coming up, other events going on at partner organizations, you can always go to greenbiz.com and click on the events tab at the top of the page. And I think I need to point out one more thing, Lauren, that if you're listening to this on uh, on Friday the 13th, this is your lucky day, which is to say that uh, we have a rate expiration that ends today, that after, after Friday, the rate's going to go up. So if you happen to be listening and you're thinking at all about coming, I would really encourage you to jump on it and to take advantage of that pre-conference discount rate. Joel, you mentioned earlier in the show that you were in Salt Lake this week at the Outdoor Retailers Winter Market event, and I understand that you actually had a minute to talk to some folks there. 
Sure. This is uh, the twice a year, the uh, outdoor retail industry. You know, this, this Again, this is all the, the clothing and equipment uh, that, that people use uh, for, for camping, hiking, canoeing, everything that you do out, so, out, outside. Um, I didn't see things like football jerseys and, you know, baseball equipment too much there, but it was, it was mostly the you know, hiking, swimming and hunting and all those, all those sports. And, um, it's put together by the the retailers, the Outdoor Retailer Association, which are the stores, and the Outdoor Industry Association, which are the companies that make these things. The you know the Patagonias and the REI, well, REI is both a retailer and a manufacturer. But you just think about all the different brands and and all the different materials, uh, the Thinsulites and and Vibrams and all those things. Everybody was there. It's kind of if you've been to Greenbuild, the U.S. Green Building Council show. And it's sort of that size and scale. So they've had, they're celebrating 10 years of their sustainability initiative. And uh, it's really been quite powerful. They've created something called the, the HIG, H-I-G-G, the HIG Index, which is a, a, ser- a series of self-assessment tools that uh, are being now used by uh, hundreds of companies in this space to assess uh, sort of holistically the sustainability performance of either a product or a company, um, and this is something that that came together collaboratively. And uh, I'm just really impressed uh, with the collaboration there. We see this uh, in other parts of of industry where companies that compete in the marketplace are finding that pre-competitively they get together and can talk about sustainability. But but this was really pioneered in the outdoor industry. Uh, they've done such a great job and have been doing it for a long time. They've really have it down. And so after the speech I gave at the, this uh, sustainability breakfast on Tuesday morning, um, I cornered uh, Amy Roberts, who's the executive director of the Outdoor Industry Association, to talk a little bit about collaboration and where this whole industry is going. Uh, here's a sampling of that conversation. So Amy, one of the things that impresses me so much about the outdoor industry is the collaboration, uh, companies coming together to really share what they're doing, uh, much more so than happens in other industries. How did that come about? Well, you know, I think 10 years ago, the companies really started to realize that we were starting to go go down the path of individual companies developing their own consumer-facing labels. And right away, really some of the big retailers in our industry stepped up and said, this is not going to be actually productive and it's going to be confusing to consumers. So really started to lead the effort to say, let's come together and figure out, you know, in a long-term way, what is a holistic consumer-facing label that would be standardized? But then once we started with that work, of course, we realized how difficult that is to pull that off. And so that really began the beginnings of what were the Eco Index and then became the HIG Index, which now is definitely operational and used by a lot of companies, but we're not yet ready to say, okay, this is a consumer-facing way to talk to consumers. But I actually think that's not that far off. It must be hard to get companies comfortable enough with one another, or is is this by the nature of the work and the products and services that these companies do sort of just much more naturally collaborate collaborative because I think other sectors grapple with this and would love to get your thoughts on what made this work. 
I think part of it is um, most of the people who work in the outdoor, or outdoor industry have a shared value set, and they mostly join the industry because they care about nature. And so we really don't have to get over that hurdle in terms of first agreeing on what's the, the end goal here, and it really is to preserve the planet and preserve these places that we all join the industry to basically spend time in. And so that part's not difficult. It's really just coming together and saying, okay, well, how are we going to work together to basically preserve this space? I think the other thing is, um, and I think this is about sustainability people in general, is it's such a difficult field when you first start. And many times at your company, you might be the only sustainability person and you're trying to get your supply chain people to make different decisions or get your designers to choose a different design or your materials people to maybe choose a different fabric. And so a lot of times you might call your colleagues in sustainability at other companies to ask, how do I get this done? What was successful for you? So I think there's a camaraderie that naturally exists. There's, it sounds like you're going to be heading in some new directions with new kinds of partnerships. You talked a little bit about some of them this morning. Talk about how you see the power of that and some of the things you're planning to be doing. Well, many times we hear from CEOs, okay, we know we have this measurement tool in the HIG index, but we need to actually start making impact. And we've hear, we hear that from the NGOs, and it's something our industry fills as well. And at OIA, we also recognize that it's not our role to develop private sector solutions. It's more likely that the private sector, and that you know you talked about it in your talk, the technology companies are going to come up with some of these ideas. And so what I think we need to do is be directional in signaling to our member companies, hey, these are good um, partners that you might want to work with. And so the reason we chose Blue Sign and the Renewal Workshop initially is we know that textile processing and end of life are the big two impact areas on the environment in making apparel. And so we chose those. They also have already great traction within our industry. And so there's some sort of endorsement that's already out there. And we'll be providing a discount, but it's also dependent on companies' progression along the improvement. So I think that's the idea behind it is partner with the companies. Signal to our industry, here's an ins a financial incentive to consider it, and then also reward companies who are actually making progress and bringing their supply chain along. One of the things that impresses me is how complex the technologies and the chemistries are for so many of the products. And and some of them are not things you'd want to put in your breakfast cereal. Mm -hmm. These are you know pretty serious things. I, I imagine as you successfully migrate, transition away from those, that you know, telling that story must be hard to talk about where you know, these chemical, these hazardous chemicals are no longer around. Is that a challenge both inside the industry and then to the consuming public? I think it is because you, it's really talking about something that maybe is negative and that maybe even consumers aren't even aware of. And so I really think it is telling the story of if you choose a more responsible textile or you know something that can be recycled or maybe you've moved away from a certain chemistry but you've still been able to retain the performance, there's an opportunity to put something in your hang tag or on your website or at point of sale that just gives the consumer a quick couple paragraphs on what that is. And I really think that's where the industry's headed. And so that consumers are, you know, they need to buy the apparel that works for them, that meets their performance requirements, meets their style, cost, color. But it's also an opportunity for us to educate at point of sale. And I think that's where the industry's moving to. So when we meet up at the Outdoor Retailer Show in 2020 and have another conversation, what's the story you hope to be able to tell about how far the industry has come? 
Well, I think one story that I really hope to tell and why I wanted to do the partnerships with Blue Sign and the Renewal Workshop is that we will start benchmarking impact data based on that. And we have the ability to do that as the trade association to collect, okay, these many companies adopted the Blue Sign system. Here's the water reduction. Here's the way chem they've moved away from certain chemistries. Here's the amount of textiles with the Renewal Workshop that we've kept from landfill and start to share those stories with our industry as a whole, but allow them to also then in turn, sh those individual brands to share those cons uh, stories with their consumers. Well, no shortage of work to do, and I'll let you get back out in the show. Uh, Amy Roberts, Executive Director of the Outdoor Industry Association, thanks so much for taking some time. Yeah, thank you. Pretty fascinating stuff. I'm also curious, though, given that the outdoor industry sort of covers so much ground from apparel to other sorts of manufacturing, were there particular sustainability hotspots that dominated the conversation, like maybe supply chains, or I know some of these companies are big on repairing their merchandise? Well, there, there's lots of things, and you have to keep in mind that as progressive and as collaborative as this industry is, there's, uh, like any sector, there's companies that are uh, very far along. Patagonia is a great example of that, and some that are just starting out or doing a few things here. And it really spans all the issues that almost any manufacturing industry would face. But one of the interesting ones is in materials. Uh, of course, the outdoor industry is very much leading the pack around advanced high-performance materials. That's what all these things we wear are made from now. But there are some issues there with microfibers, for example. Um, you know, we talk about microfibers and that's good and it's, you know, breathable or whatever attributes. It's, you know, rainproof, waterproof. But these are microfibers and some of these things end up in water. Some of them end up on our skin. And there's there's some pockets of concern about what's in this stuff and, and what are the impacts because we don't really know. There's some of the materials, PFCs is one that, that are used commonly in, um, in some of these materials and uh, that may be problematic in the way that bisphenol A was in, in canned goods. Uh, and so there's still... Uh, looking at this vast palette of materials that are being used and trying to understand, uh, you know, aside from the great performance they provide in terms of being able to stay hot or cold or swim farther or whatever it is, you know, will these have uh, have other health and environmental implications? So it's it's not just a matter of, of figuring this stuff out or, or, or even creating things that are uh, optimized from an efficiency or environmental footprint. It's the health impacts of some of these things. And so, it, you know, it just points out as we see in sector after sector, topic after topic, that this stuff isn't easy. But uh, this is a group that seems very motivated in figuring it out. They're, after all, their main customers are healthy, active individuals. And uh, they really seem to be on the case. And so I was very impressed. Shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about diversity and sustainability. Not totally uncharted territory, but an interesting area that our associate editor, Anya Hollemeiser, took a look at this week. So she is joining us now. Anya, how's it going? I'm great, Lauren. How about yourself? Good, good. So diversity, I think, definitely one of those words that gets bandied about in sort of generic, vague ways. What specifically are we talking about when we talk about the issue with diversity among sustainability leadership? I spoke this week with 
Whitney Tome, who's the executive director of Green 2.0, an environment con- environmental consultancy that tracks data about diversity in, uh, in nonprofits. And we spoke about diversity in the environmental movement, why it's important, what it means. And so diversity specifically that Green 2.0 tracks is racial diversity. So the amount of people of color who work in the environmental movement. Green 2.0 specifically focuses on nonprofits, NGOs, government organizations, but we also took a deeper dive into the corporate and executive suite and what people who are working in corporations in CSO roles can do about diversity. From a legal standpoint, Whitney Tome said that diversity means the legal protected classes. So she's a lawyer, she thinks about race, gender, nationality, but she also talks about people that are slowly starting to be protected by sexual orientation, sexual identity, and gender. So it can be a very broad conversation. Definitely. And I heard you talking about a phrase before we went on the air that was this idea of a green ceiling or like a, a certain threshold that uh, has for some reason been difficult to, to crack. What do you mean by that? There is a huge discrepancy among the specifically black people experience because of climate change. So um, over 60% of black people live within a short distance of a, a power plant and Black children are more likely to have rates of, of severe asthma, and black people are also more likely to, to call for environmental protection than white people. On the other hand, it, up about, I think the top number is 16% of people in leadership positions in NGOs and in environmental positions in NGOs are black. So why is this happening? There is this green ceiling that... Uh, has been in place for, for many years, as Whitney has described in this next clip. When people of color have started to move or gotten into that you know, upper management, almost cracking that C-suite level, they realize that, one, they're going to be the first you know, stepping into that role, and they're going to be fully supported in that case. The other one is just opening the door and recognizing when somebody is potentially going to be the first and making sure that as an organization you're ready to support that person potentially in a different way then you have everybody else who stepped into that kind of a role. And then the other thing is also get down to, you know, is the movement ready to tackle issues of communities and people of color in a more systemic way rather than sort of one-off? And often what happens is that sometimes the person of color becomes the champion for people of color issues, whether they always want to be or not. So they often do, and then you have to champion that even more and in a greater context at the senior level. And if you've been pushing and pushing for years to try to get that across at the senior level, and then you step into that space, are they really fully ready for that? You know, are they willing to take on those issues across the board? Um, and I say that some people of color have felt not always that the organization is really ready to take on those issues and so they haven't stepped into those spaces or have left or gone to other organizations they felt were more ready or gone into consultancies or other things. And then I think underlying this conversation is sort of this concept of why is diversity an imperative uh, for for groups like Green 2.0 but also others within the sustainability field in terms of 
really increasing representation of black individuals, Latino individuals, all different groups that have historically been much less well represented in both uh, executive C-suites and corporate executive teams, but also NGOs and government, like you mentioned. Um, so did Whitney speak to sort of the, the underlying case for diversity or sort of beyond uh, a moral or ethical reason why this, this would be a priority? There's a business case for giving people equity, having everybody have a seat at the table to discuss the challenges that we are all going to face in the future. And when you have more diverse people tackling problems, you get more durable, you get better profitable, long lasting solutions to problems. What about this question of sort of translating the data that Green 2.0 and others have compiled on diversity in NGOs and nonprofits to the corporate realm? Um, What specifically can companies be doing to make a dent in all of this? When you're looking for diversity, you have to be very clear about what that means for the organization. You have to make sure the interview panel, um, the hiring team, the executive team are all on board. And examine, are you willing to wait for a diverse slate of candidates and do the work to, to demand that that's what the hiring pool that you're going to, to be choosing from? And if not, then why is it not happening? You know, there are people who are doing a lot of work to create diversity in their, in their teams. And that can mean waiting some time to find the right person or to assemble the talent pool that includes a diverse slate of candidates from different backgrounds and ethnicities. Maybe this means you won't hire someone for another month or two, but it's important because without taking those initial steps, having those initial conversations, finding the data, setting benchmarks for the organization, change is never going to happen. So putting in the legwork to to maybe do more on recruiting and interviewing definitely makes sense. Um, But there's also this concept, I think it's a word that's, again, sort of tossed around a lot, but not always super specific in how it's defined, which is this concept of being a good ally or um, sort of thinking about how you can be supportive of diversity efforts. So is that something that Whitney addressed? Yes. And she said that, um, so being an ally, it's thinking about what you can do to elevate other people over time. And what Whitney said is that there are many aspects to being an ally. You can be a white ally for your peers of color, or you can be a person of color who's being an ally to your peers who are trying to move up into the leadership positions in the environmental movement. And here is Whitney explaining and unpacking the term ally. A white ally or a person of color is that you think about, right, what does this person actually want to do? and can do and realize that not every person of color is going to want to be the champion for people of color issues and then begin to understand all right if this person does want to champion and is advancing this on a regular basis how do i support them how do i give them both the breadth and depth of access to leadership um decision making knowing enough information to give good advice on decision-making. So what other doors do I need to open to that person for that input to get in? And then the question is, how do you then hold yourself accountable to actually doing that? How do you create both systems and structures in place to ensure that both that advancement and that commitment to diversity happens at all levels of the organization? that not just you, the one white ally, is committed to it, but that you bring in the whole rest of the organization to have that same level of commitment. All right, Associate Editor Anya Holomizer, look for that story early next week, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lauren. Have a great weekend.
Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find links to the organizations, the stories, and events we've mentioned. Thanks, as always, to our extremely talented podcast director, Saria Malconian. Contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to get your comments. Uh, help spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Let others know about this podcast if you've been enjoying it. As so, so many of you tell us you do. We love to get that kind of support as well. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition, inaugural edition of GreenBiz 350 on January 20th. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, have a great day. Mm-hmm.